to In the Booth, a Frederick News Post podcast exploring the 2016 races to represent Frederick County. This has been an election year like no other, both around the county and around the country. Here, we'll explore issues important to Frederick County voters, from third-party candidates to overcrowded roads and classrooms to presidential politics. I'm Danielle Gaines, here with my co-host, Andy Schatz. Hello. And we are In the Booth. Glad Hill Furniture is the only place you need to visit. Save big by taking half off all leather furniture store-wide. And this month, you can also take advantage of 24 months 0% financing. Stop by and visit one of our expert design consultants and get luxury for less. Kathy Shalega is a state delegate, small business owner, mother, and grandmother. And now she wants to join the U.S. Senate. Shalega, a Republican from Baltimore County, is minority whip in the Maryland House of Delegates, making her the state's highest-ranking Republican woman. She's running against Congressman Chris Van Hollen to fill the seat of retiring U.S. Senator Barbara Mikulski. On the campaign trail, Shalega talks about the purpling of Maryland and voters' desires to see more seats on Capitol Hill go to everyday Americans instead of career politicians. In the Senate, Shalega said she would focus her efforts on reducing government regulation and improving the Department of Veterans Affairs. Today on In the Booth, we talked to Shalega about her campaign, these topics, and more. Welcome. Thanks so much for this opportunity. I'm glad to be with you both. Thank you. Uh, So not all of our listeners have probably had the opportunity yet to meet you in person. Um, Could you just tell us briefly a little bit about yourself? Thanks. Yes, I'm Kathy Shalega. And uh, one of the first questions I always get is, how do you say your name? And I always say, Kathy. (laughs) (laughs) But it is Shalega. And I'm sure your listeners have seen my signs along the roadside. And I've been to Frederick County quite a few times. So I've met a number of the voters that live out here. I am a small business owner. I, my husband and I started a small general contracting business 30 years ago. I live in Baltimore County, and uh, we have two grown sons, Eric and Steve. They're both married, and we have one adorable little baby granddaughter named Avery. And tell us about your time in the House, the Maryland House. Um, I was elected in 2010 and took office in 11 with your Senator Mike Huff and Kathy Afzali. Together we came in, and um, I've served there for five years. In uh, 2013, I was elected by the House Republican Caucus to be a leader, where I serve as the House Minority Whip, and I'm the highest-ranking Republican woman in Maryland. So after this time in the House, why have you decided to seek uh, seat in Congress? Well, I can say that people do ask me after they say, Kathy, how do you say your name? The next question is, do you really ride a motorcycle? So I don't, I don't know if you saw my ad with the motorcycle, but people always seem to ask that. And then the next question is usually, why are you running for U.S. Senate? And I have to say, and when I ran in 2010 for the House of Delegates, I did it because there weren't enough small business owners in office. There weren't enough business people that really knew what it meant to sign the front of a paycheck. And um, lots of uh, lawmakers have, quote, good ideas. That might sound good on paper, but in the actual working out, it just doesn't work well. And having that real experience of signing paychecks and employing people and trying to work your way through government bureaucracy gives you a different perspective on lawmaking. And, you know, we can see how great it's worked out for Maryland with Larry Hogan. 
And electing Larry Hogan's brought wonderful change to the state of Maryland. We're turning into a more business-friendly state, a more jobs-friendly state, a more citizen and taxpayer-friendly state. Um, he's As he's cutting tolls, and we've repealed the rain tax, and just working to put a, a new day in Maryland. And so when this U.S. Senate seat came open, when Senator Barbara Mikulski decided that she was going to retire, I said, gosh, well, let's put a younger, taller Polish girl from Baltimore in the Senate seat, a small business owner that can bring change to Washington, just like Larry Hogan's doing in Maryland. So on the campaign trail, you talk a little bit, speaking of Governor Hogan, you talk about the purpling of Maryland. Um, but national polls, polls show that the two parties are, are really divided at this point in time. Um, how do you see working in that environment if you are elected and get to take a seat in the Senate in January? I think uh, we all know that citizens alike are just tired of Washington. They, they know Washington's broken. I know Washington's broken. And a lot of it is exactly what you said, Danielle. People from both sides just go into their corner and they come out swinging with rhetoric that doesn't work. Um, not enough people willing to roll their sleeves up, work across the aisle, and get things done. And I can tell you, as a Republican in Maryland, if I don't know how to work across the aisle, I certainly am not going to get anything done. You know, we are a legislature that, um, while we have broken the supermajority and we are purpling Maryland, we're still dominated by Democrats. And I have a great relationship with most of the folks in Annapolis. And uh, it's pretty bipartisan feeling, and we do work together. Just this past session, I was proud to put a bill in with one of probably the most liberal members of the House of Delegates, David Moon, from Tacoma Park. We put in a bill for more transparency in Annapolis. And, you know, your listeners are listening to us here, and they know that this is Kathy Shalega. But if you listen to the Maryland House floor session or the Maryland Senate floor session, you hear a voice and you don't know who it is. There are 141 members of the House of Delegates and there's no video. We are one of the last, I think there are only nine states in our country that do not have video of the floor sessions. We have video of our committee meetings, but we haven't provided video for citizens. Citizens should be able to see what's going on. It's their government. We are citizen servants of the people of Maryland. And so David Moon and I put that bill in. And uh, Governor Hogan, it was one of the few bills he actually supported and endorsed outside of his own measures this past session. Unfortunately, M Senator Mike Miller and um, Delegate uh, Speaker Mike Bush decided they didn't want to do it, so it didn't move. But I would not be surprised if next year this bill passed with Mike Bush's name on it because it's overdue. It mm -hmm. is time. Maryland prides itself in transparency. It's really a shame that voters and taxpayers can't see what's going on in their own House of Delegates in Maryland Senate. So what are some potentially bipartisan federal issues in your mind where you could see yourself maybe signing on to a similar bill? Well, I would tell you one of the main reasons, there are many reasons I'm running and some, some are our primary one would be the Veterans Administration and VA issues. And I know here in Frederick County, you know, military presence is, is really, really important. And there are many veterans that live here in Frederick County. And when I look at what's going on in the VA, I, I'm just so disappointed 
That is not a Democrat or a Republican issue. You, we have a moral obligation in this country to take care of the men and women who sign up for our United States military. And when you hear about uh, folks waiting 700 days for a doctor's appointment or a man that lives up in Harper County that waited five years for a hearing aid, and his hearing was damaged in the Middle East. I mean, these are just things that we need bipartisan support. And just, um, just the other day, there was a bill before the U.S. House, um, H.R. 5620, called the VA Accountability First and Appeals Modernization Act. It was a bipartisan bill that passed with a large number of Democrats. Unfortunately, my opponent, Chris Van Hollen, voted against it. It's going to allow the VA to fire um, based on performance. And, you know, when you read in the paper about people who worked at the VA, have collected a paycheck for a year and never showed up for work, there's a problem there. Um, it modernizes the disability process, which is so important. If our veterans are disabled, they need to be able to get recognized as disabled and get the benefits that they need. It protects whistleblowers. And um, we know that, that there was recently a whistleblower who was fired for trying to clean up the VA, and it holds senior officials accountable. So this would be the kind of bipartisan act that I would certainly vote for. And um, working across the aisle, we just should not be putting party first. It should be putting people first. Um, let's come back to the Maryland House for a minute. And <clears throat> when you say that you have to learn how to get along with the other side of the aisle. What are some examples where you've had successes in doing that? Well, this, um, you know, the, the Transparency Act, while David Moon and I didn't get that bill passed, we certainly got a lot of attention. We got, um, I think we even got some national attention for that measure, certainly statewide attention. I worked with uh, one of my de Democrat delegates from my Prince George's County on a domestic violence issue that we actually got out of the House. I think the Senate did not pass it. But um, bringing attention to these very important domestic violence issues, and that lead sponsor came to me and said, Kathy, I'd like you to help me try to get this bill passed. Um, and, you know, I've worked on a lot of regulatory reforms that um, – you know, I love to ask folks as I go across the state, do you think we need more laws? And most people laugh and they're like, uh, no, Kathy, we don't need more laws. And I agree completely. But we certainly need regulatory reform. And uh, when under the last governor, I was able to get things done with the departments, which were largely uh, Democrat. And, you know, I'll continue to work like that. I, I think it's, I have a history of doing that. And I'm proud of that. And I think being a small business owner, you have to learn how to solve problems. I mean, you can't go to your corner and use rhetoric. You you have to run a business and help employees and help your customers and your clients and um, you know balance your pay balance your books and pay your payroll and a lot of things that you know are really important. One of the major issues this past session was about um, criminal justice reform. And I'm wondering what you thought about Maryland's effort and also whether you think that there um, are federal, you know, national level reforms that should be done. Great question, Danielle. Yes, I was proud to help um, support that criminal justice reform, those measures that came through Annapolis. Um, and just this week, I was really uh, excited to be invited to visit the prison in Baltimore City. 
They have an they have a workforce development occupational development program at the Baltimore City Detention Center. We went in. I went in with an, another um, staffer of mine, and we visited the printing and the auto mechanics uh, workforce development programs. And I tell you what, it was fascinating. It was great to see these men that are learning. First, their soft skills were excellent. You know, come up, look in the eyes, shake you, your hand, have a great conversation, and talk about current events and talk about their. Uh, hope to get out of prison and have a job so these things are really important we know if people getting out of prison cannot find a job they're they're doomed to go right back there so we need to make sure that we're doing things to prepare people when they leave incarceration to re-enter society to have a job to be able to support themselves and and find a way back into their family and where they came from so these are really important measures for these folks their families and society as a whole so you think a national solution is investing in those types of programs or well making sure uh, we can help those offenders there's federal people come out of federal prison too I mean we had our have our federal laws but a lot of this stuff is driven by the states and uh, I am a big supporter of the 10th amendment which is a state's rights and I believe that government is best administered at the most local level so um, being able to accomplish things on the county level, then the state level, then the federal level, where government is closest to the people, I think it's most effective. So I think our founders had the right idea when they said, you know, here's the Constitution, here's the framework for the federal government, and everything that's not enumerated here belongs in the states. So I, I know that's why people are frustrated today with Washington, because Washington is doing a lot of things they were never intended to do. But um, yes, I, I, I'm a supporter of these criminal justice reform measures, and it's good for everybody. We have to get the violent offenders out of our communities. So I'm not talking about violent offenders. I'm talking about the people who are offending for drug issues, um, small possession issues, those kind of things, that it gets on their record and then they have a hard time getting a job. <clears throat> Let's talk about two transportation issues that Frederick County residents care about, Interstate 270 and Metro. Can you share some ideas you have for improvements for each of those? Yes, we talked about the 270 um, congestion, and just today I came up 270, so I got a little firsthand look at that. And I can see why folks in that corridor there are, are clamoring to have improvements. Um, the traffic and congestion is terrible. So, uh, you know, I as your U.S. Senator, I would certainly be looking at working with Governor Hogan to try to solve those problems. And the Metro, God, we want folks to use mass transit, but mass transit has to be reliable and affordable and safe for people to use it. And I hear complaints all the time about the red line coming out of Washington, that it's not reliable. Um, you hear about stoppages and outages and People need to count on this. If you want folks to use mass transit, it has to work, it has to be reliable, and it has to be affordable. Mm -hmm. So what is the solution, though, for 270? Well, 270, we've got to have a people buying into the to collectively how we're going to solve it. Um, widening it certainly seems to be like one of the answers, but when you get down to the beltway, where are you going from there? So 
Um, I do not have a, a magic wand answer for that. I wish I did, but I don't. I know we talked about some of the interchange problems along 270 and working on fixing them. Um, so I think there's some solutions that, that people are looking at, but I, I wish I had a, a magic wand answer. It's going to take planning, it's going to take money, and it's going to take a buy-in from the community and the state to make sure it happens. Do you get to use Metro much? No, I live in Perry Hall, and there's no Metro near me. And uh, I do, when I visit Washington, D.C., occasionally I will take the Mark train to Washington, um, but... It, it, I just, it's not near my house and I can't get from my house to anywhere. Uh, you know, I'm in construction, so we visit job sites and, um, you know, it's a mass transit metro just doesn't work for me. And I think what I know from Maryland is 92% of the people in Maryland use our roads and highways and 8% of Marylanders use mass transit. So we need to make sure that we're meeting the needs of both. I'm very, very proud of Governor Larry Hogan's efforts to modernize the Baltimore Metro Area Mass Transit System. It has not been looked at or modernized in decades. And this is what we need to do. People have moved, people's um, commuting habits, where they live, where they work, it's all changed. And the Metro and the Mass Transit System hasn't kept up with it. So he's, we're reorienting that, to, and it'll look much more like a subway map that we're used to seeing colored lines and where they go. So I'm, that will launch next June. It's in the planning stages, and I think that's a great idea. I, I think we have to stay on top of the modernization of the way people commute, and if possible, the mass transit. It has to work. Again, it has to be reliable. It has to be affordable, and it has to be safe if we think people are going to use it. I want to switch back to a national issue. Great. <laughs> um, uh, talking about the Supreme Court vacancy. What are your thoughts on that? Do you think that um, this current Senate should have acted or that they set any sort of precedent for not having acted? Well, this current uh, you, Senate has not acted, as you know, as your listeners all know. And I think that's partially because they were listening to what uh, President Barack Obama said when he was a senator, and Chuck Schumer and others on both sides of the aisles had spoken out and said, nominating a Supreme Court judge in the midst of an election year politicizes that whole situation, and so they, they did not act on that. Um, and when I'm, when I'm your next U.S. Senator, I will have the same policy I have today, which is an open-door policy. I meet with anyone. I think that's your job when you put your name on the ballot and say, I'm going to run for office and be a public servant, and I'm going to represent the people of Maryland, then you have a responsibility to listen to them. So I have, um, you know, for five years had an open-door policy, met with all kinds of folks on all sides of issues to where I can make a, a better decision instead of going in with a you know predetermined outcome. But as the election season uh, lengthens, we're no longer at several months, it's a year, a year and a half, maybe two years, where is the cutoff between where what is politicized? When is the safe time that you can appoint somebody? I You know what? I haven't even thought of that, so I'm not going to give you an answer on the fly. So I, I don't, you know, I don't know, and certainly be difficult to 
each each there are not that many vacancies so each vacancy must be considered on its own merits and um so i, I would say it that way because i don't want to give you a rash answer and then come back and say well i haven't really thoroughly thought of that um on the topic of courts this also came up in Annapolis this year as well, but um, here in Frederick, there's been a debate over the bust of the su former Supreme Court Justice Roger Brooke Tawney, who wrote the Dred Scott decision. And there's been a lot of debate about whether or not statues and relics of America's divided history should be retired or put away or changed in some way. What are your thoughts on that ongoing debate at this point? Well, that specific... Um statue you're talking about the the tawny statue on the state house grounds um i had actually talked to some folks before january session and had um the, or the january the first session that we were back in 2015 i had talked to some folks and had considered putting a bill in to have that statue moved um you know i would encourage your listeners to read the dred scott decision and I would never advocate for, you know, putting it in a warehouse somewhere, but I just think on the state house grounds, I would much rather, um, you know, see another statue there. But I'll tell you the reason that I did not put that in. It was a brand new session. We had the highest number of new delegates in I, memory, maybe 70 something new members of the House of Delegates. And uh, I know Senator Mike Miller is an ardent supporter of that statue and I just didn't think it was worth picking a fight over that at that point but then the next year came up and I had a student from the University of Maryland call me and I think I was in the Diamondback paper commenting on this issue and saying um, you know what I think it's time to find another place for that statue mm -hmm. so well there's there's actually three different tawny debates going on at the same time and the state Frederick has its own bust oh I d and I wish I did not know that I'm sorry I should have read up on it and I could comment <laughs> on it but Yes, and and look, you know, there's different differing opinions on this, but when I read the Dred Scott opinion and I thought, you know, this is um, not the best part of our history, and, um, you know, so so maybe we could find another statue that could go there. And fi the difficulty becomes where do you put it, and, and we have to solve that. But there's lots of smart people in our state that can find out where we, where we can relocate that. We just hit the 15th anniversary of September 11. It gave people a chance to think back about what happened, how our country changed, but um, a strong undercurrent through everything we think about is how safe are we? And do you think the country is safer now than we were then? You know, I will tell you that over the last <coughs> few years, things have really been moving the wrong direction. and safety and security of our nation is one of the primary responsibilities um, of the federal government. It's something that you and I cannot do, and just certainly our state government can't do that either. And when I ask pe people and travel across the state, and I'll ask people, do you feel safer than you did seven years ago? And they'll say, no, I don't. You know, we have a, a crisis going on in Europe. We've had um, terrorist attacks here in our own homeland and people do not feel safer than they did before so i think we need a uh, vigilance and i was really really thankful and prayerful before 9 11 this year and worried i know others shared that same concern that 
there would be a terrorist attack because the, um, you know, certainly terrorist, um, you think back to Libya and 9-11 and what they did there. Um, so it's glad, it's good that we're all on our, on our guard for that, but I do, I am very concerned about national security. And how would you describe your thoughts on the balance between uh, individual liberties and overall security? We've had some measures such as the Patriot Act get, that can be seen as infringing on individual rights, but um, proponents will say it's for a greater good. Where, where do you see the line? You know, it certainly is one of the most difficult things that we deal with. And I, I want to come down on the side of individual liberty as often as I can. So I think, um, you know, we are uh, the land of liberty, and it's so important. We really, as Americans, value our individual liberties. I recently commented on the drones in Baltimore City and, you know, said I, I, I don't approve of that. Uh, when the citizens of Baltimore City found out there were secret drones, a secret drone program, that was concerning to me. And... Um, you know, there are security cameras in Baltimore City. They're well lit up. They have a blue light on them, and certainly businesses have cameras to protect their property, and people know that. But you never expect to be watched when you're sitting out on your back deck drinking a glass of iced tea with your family and friends. So, um, you know, I was concerned about that, and we'll see what Baltimore City does with that program going forward. If it's legal, is there a reason to change the law, either at the state level, which you could do as a delegate or potentially as if, a senator at the federal level? If what's legal. Uh, the drone program? Yeah, I don't, I don't know um, how legal it is to spy on people in their private property. You know, it, that, that exceeds what I think is a certain amount of privacy rights that we as Americans expect to have. I don't... You know, I certainly hope um, I would fight against any programs that would allow drones to watch you in your backyard. Uh, government drones watching you do things. I think that's that's a, a terrible idea. What if the only footage it captures is of public places? Um, I don't know how you would guarantee that. <laughs> Devil's always in the details, right? I mean, where does the public uh, sidewalk end in your private stoop of your house begin you know i'm not sure you could delineate that so i'm i'm gonna i'm gonna weigh in on private property private security private your privacy and your liberty and your freedom are part of the culture of america there are there are a number of federal facilities and federal installations in the state of maryland um how would you um, balance advocating for those different facilities where, you know, Montgomery County might want one thing, Frederick County might want another, Baltimore County might want something else. Um, what do you just think about funding levels for those agencies? Well, we have 14 um, military facilities in the state of Maryland and very proud of each one and an ardent, ardent supporter of, of those um, really wonderful, unique programs that we have in the state of Maryland. Um, and I will be a huge advocate for them. In the last BRAC, you know, Maryland made out pretty well. Um, and we really do have some unique and wonderful things here. Fort Detrick, you know, has a unique mission. Aberdeen, Pax River, you know, Fort Meade, NSA. We, we just have some great things. And we have NASA going on um, here, too, which I'm a supporter of. 
So I think the military, with our proximity to Washington, D.C., is a huge part of Maryland's economy, a huge part of Maryland's culture. And my dad is a 20-year career Army veteran, and I'm a big supporter of, the, of veterans, and I'm a, a supporter of the military, having grown up in a military family. My dad was stationed at Fort Meade. Um, I lived in Laurel when he was there. I lived in Oxon Hill um, when he was stationed at the Pentagon. So um, lived in Baltimore. He was in Korea when I was born. And so we were in Baltimore when my dad was um, in Korea at that time because my mother ha- is from Baltimore. So, you know, even though we're military, my family's moved all over but um, had three stops in Maryland, you know, fin- finished up at Severna Park. It's possible in this election, and it's not the outcome you would want, but there could be um, an all-male delegation to Congress representing Maryland for the first time in a while without Senator Mikulski. Is that significant, or is it more important to look at individual candidates and the um, issues that they support for women? Well, I I was quite dismayed, uh, shared Donna Edwards' concern, and I thought she was very eloquent in expressing her concern that the Democrat Party has failed to nominate a woman on the ballot this year. And um, we have uh, Congressman Andy Harris, who I'm sure will be reelected um, Republican, and the other nine members of the Maryland delegation right now are Democrats, and if they're successful in all nine of those, there will be no women representing Maryland and Washington. And I think that's a shame, and I don't ever ask people to vote for me because I'm a woman. Um, you know, that's pandering to women, and that's thinking that women think, oh, you know, I just want a woman. I don't care if she represents me. But, you know, I'm a wife, a mom, a grandmom. I'm a small business owner. I bring a lot of other qualities to the table. And I know that our opinions are important. And, and women bring a different point of view um, often. I see that in Annapolis and I see that in business. Um, and, and business has really improved over the last 50 years. You've seen a lot more women getting involved in higher levels of business. And it's been really good for America, good for workers good for business um you know you look back to the last time maryland did not have a woman it was 1972 or three and uh, i i was in i think i was in middle school my mom had a beehive hairdo cat glasses and she was cooking dinner on an avocado green stove Uh, you know those of you old enough to remember those times and uh you know her career options were nurse or teacher which are great career options my mom was a teacher But today, you know, women have a lot more options, and they can be a teacher or a nurse, which, again, are great career options, but they can also be CEOs and doctors, and and they can be state senators and U.S. senators and delegates, and, you know, lots of um, Congresswomen, Ami Hove, are running out here as well. The two women on the ballot are both Republicans. So, you know, kind of offsets that misnomer that Democrats like to say they're the party of women, you know, I would say you don't they're not walking the walk um so i I ask for people to look at my voting record consider me uh, as a multi-faceted candidate and people rarely vote for someone because of one one particular thing so um but it is important i think it would be really be a shame and um be very unfortunate for marylanders for maryland citizens if we don't have any women in washington representing us 
I just want to ask, you know, where you fall on some of these issues that are cast as women's issues. Um, so um, on the issue of um, access to abortion and um, federal funding of Planned Parenthood. So I am pro-life, and I believe that part of the culture of violence that we have, I, I like to see a culture of life promoted in our society and uh, in general. Uh, my husband and I, uh, my family did foster care in Baltimore City. And, you know, there's so many opportunities to help and promote life across our state. And adoption, um, you know, is a great option. So as, as your U.S. Senator, you know, I, I, I value life. And I think that's important. And I um, you know, would love to work on issues to promote domestic adoption and help reform some things that are going on in our foster care system and make sure that all kids get a chance. Um, yeah. And do you think that the federal government should contribute parts of funding to Planned, par planned Parenthood? Um, you know, this whole issue with Planned Parenthood, I think, is not about Planned Parenthood, but it's about them selling aborted baby parts for profit. So, um, you know, Planned Parenthood delivers some services, women's health care services. I've been to a Planned Parenthood when I was a young woman. I lived in a rural area. And um, so it, that becomes one of those footballs that I think both sides have used to ratchet up the rhetoric across the board. And you're not going to find me doing that. I'm not somebody that's going to use rhetoric to raise money or, you know, get people ginned up about an issue. So, but I will tell you, I don't care if you're Planned Parenthood or any other abortion clinic, you should not be selling aborted baby parts for profit. We know that the public is abhorred by that. So it, it, that's what the conversation was about, not about Planned Parenthood per se. We saw in the 8th District Democratic primary a prime example of how much money can flow into uh, campaigns. And I would like to hear from you what limits you think there need to be from a regulatory perspective and also what limits are you setting for yourself in your own campaign? Limits regarding? Can, uh, campaign money coming in. Well, I think you you need to be asking uh, my opponent, Chris Van Hollen, that because <laughs> he's far outraised uh, me and, and will far outraise me. Look, you know, Governor Hogan won his race with uh, Anthony Brown had five times as much money as he did. Anthony Brown had $25 million. And Larry Hogan, all told, had about $5 million with the money that outside groups put in. And he won. So it's not always about money. Um, Senator John Salling from uh, the Essex-Dundalk area, the eastern Baltimore County, is a Republican. I think Johnny Salling had about $12,000 in his campaign and his opponent I think had 400,000 and John beat him. So, you know, Johnny was the victor. So, um, you know, money is money funds campaigns and it's, you know, you can't get up on TV without without it. And for a US Senate race, it's certainly um, important, but you know, the special interest money and PACs, that's been something that my opponent has had a lot of in his personal campaign he's raised 22.8 million dollars 5.6 million of that was from PACs 
Um, he's raised 710000 from Wall Street while he talks about railing against Wall Street. Um, he's the 10th highest recipient of money from Wall Street in Washington. $3 million from lawyers. It's no wonder he won't vote for tort reform when lawyers are his la- lawyers and lobbyists are his highest donors to his campaign. And when he was the head of the DCCC, he raised $340 million. So there's a lot of rhetoric out there about special interest money and PACs, but it's not coming from me. You know, I, um, I, I do not have you know, that kind of wherewithal. I'm, I'm just a simple girl from Perry Hall. And most of our contributions are small donations from people across our great state. And people can go to Kathy from Maryland if they want to help me out. Um, switching gears just slightly, um, one of the other issues that has come up a lot lately is um, gerrymandering um, and the districts that we have here in Maryland. Uh, so far, attempts at changing that, even with Governor Hogan, even with Democrats on board, have not been successful at the state level. Do you think it's time for a federal or national solution to that issue? Well, it's funny. Um, of course, people, Democrats in Maryland say it should be a national solution <laughs> because, you know, up until Governor Hogan was here, they controlled the, the districts. And you can look what's happened. It's a shame. In 2000, Maryland had four Republicans and four Democrats representing them in the eight-member Congressional House delegation. Today we have seven and one. And that was from the redistricting done under Martin O'Malley. And then at the same time we have a governor, we have a Republican governor, yet one-eighth of the eight-member House delegation is a Republican. So the Democrats in Maryland have used uh, gerrymandering to their utmost capability. Um, I guess technology may be their friend in this redistricting effort that they've had. Um, And certainly the public is in favor of changing this. The districts, the representation should represent the people of the state. And Maryland is not one, one out of 10. I mean, one-tenth, if you put the two senators and the eight congressmen, one-tenth of the representation in Washington is Republican. So no wonder Republicans are upset in the state of Maryland. Yes, we have to find a way to solve this problem, but the people in power do not want to give it up. So, um, you know, we need a bill. We We don't have citizen initiative to the ballot, or we know we could get that done. So hopefully Governor... Hogan will be successful in getting this bill passed. He put together, um, you know, as you know, a a task force that went around the state. I went to a couple of those meetings, and people want to see a change in that. Divided government works. You know, you get a better government when you have Republicans and Democrats both coming together to solve problems. Then you don't have extremists on either side running the show but everybody's coming together a lot more like citizens think somewhere in the middle everybody gives a little bit and in the end you get a better product we've touched on a lot of different issues briefly Uh, is there anything that we haven't uh, brought up that you'd like to at least mention as important issues in this campaign well i would um just encourage your listeners to go to my website kathyformaryland.com and follow you know like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter. Um, I, I'm happy to um, explain my positions, and I'm proud of my record. I think if you want to change Washington, look, 
my mom always said, what's the definition of insanity, Kathy? Doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different result. I would say that to the voters of Maryland. If you don't like the direction Washington's going, if you think Washington's broken, then giving Chris Van Hollen a promotion, putting the same person back in Washington is not going to fix the problem. You can look at Maryland. I'm proud of my record with business. I'm proud of being a small business owner. My opponent has a 38% voting record with the chamber, 0% with the small business and FIB, 21% voting record with the manufacturers. I mean, this is a, a man who is there for special interests, but it's not for business and it's not for jobs. So, you know, I'm asking voters in Maryland to look at our records, examine our positions, and, um, you know, if you like Washington, you want to vote for Chris Van Hollen, but if you think we need to change Washington, then I'm asking for people to vote for Kathy Shalega. Well, thank you. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. In the Booth is produced by Graham Cullen, Chris Sands, Jeremy Bauerwolf, and myself. Our theme music is courtesy of FMP reporter and rocker Kelsey Luce. If it's politics and it's Frederick, we hope you'll join us for the conversation in the booth.